Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. As usual, we will be answering questions on meditation practice and Buddhism with special emphasis and focus on practical questions, questions that have answers that could benefit the person asking. So looking for questions that are important to you, not just curiosity questions or intellectual questions, but questions that actually stem from a need, practical need in your spiritual development. The first 15 minutes, as usual, will be silent meditation. During that time, you can start to post questions in the chat. And when you've posted questions, if you don't have any questions, we can just meditate together for 15 minutes, and we will begin to ask and answer questions at 15 minutes after the hour.
Okay, we're back. So we will now begin the Q&A portion of the broadcast. If you have questions, you can continue to post it. Post them. We'd ask that anything that isn't a question from here on be not entered into the chat, that only questions be posted just to keep it clean. Thank you, Bhante. We do have questions. When I'm trying to note my anxiety, even without disliking or avoiding it, the physical sensation caused due to the anxiety overcomes the act of noting, because of which I'm unable to see clearly. May I have some advice? Um, yeah, you, you might be trying too hard to note the anxiety because that's the only thing I can think of that would cause the something else to overcome the act of noting. The, the, the point is then to, of course, note the physical sensation, not the anxiety. So it can't really overcome the act of noting. A physical sensation is just a physical sensation. And if it's so incredibly strong that your brain just uh, short circuits or something, I suppose that's possible. You could have a stroke or something, and then you wouldn't be able to note. But otherwise, you just note the physical sensation. If there's some reaction to the physical sensation or some... Um, maybe disliking of the fact that you can't note the anxiety because of the physical sensation getting in the way, you have to note, just note that as well. So it's a question of noting what is actually there instead of what you want to note. Ultimately, it's just going to take a little bit of skill, but also flexibility, which is tied to skill. So it just takes some practice to be able to note what's actually there. Don't get fixated on noting something that you want to note or that you're trying to note. During practice, I note I haven't been on the foot or the stomach for a long time. How do I reduce the moment of wandering during meditation? Well, practice. It's not something you can actively or should try to actively fix something to notice, and to be mindful of, be mindful of your reactions to it, the frustration that might come, the desire to be distracted less, the guilt or the the self-consciousness of not being able to note when you think you should be able to. You note after you, after you realize it, and eventually that leads to a quicker reaction time. In the beginning, you might just catch your distractions at the end after you've been distracted and maybe had a long thought, and then the thought's over. Then you realize you were completely distracted. Eventually, you, you get better at it. It just takes practice. All teachings say, 
see the truth of things and thoughts as it is. By teachings I know the truth, but it's hard for me to see and realize the true nature through meditation. I only note but cannot see. How can I develop the insight to see? Well, you might be trying to see something that isn't there. It's often we we often get caught up in our ideas of what we should see and our um, well overlook what's actually there. Because it, what's real is quite simple. And so in some ways it's not so much about seeing something new as it is about letting go of our, letting go of the, what we see that isn't there. Right? When we talk about the three characteristics, all three of them are, 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 are negatives impermanence is the lack of permanence and it's because we see a permanence that isn't there suffering is really just not happiness that's what it literally means and so it, it's about realizing that us seeing happiness in anything is wrong that happiness is just not there that satisfaction cannot be found in those things and non-self of course is, is literally negative there's no self and and we we see many things as me as mine as under our control and when we realize that we realize that's not true that's what it means to see clearly to see those three things so it's basically not seeing anything new per se it's about realizing that the way we saw things is is not correct so simply dealing with um, the frustration and the desire for things to be different than they are and realizing that that's just causing us stress and suffering is basically the core of the practice, not to see some, uh, some deeper truth about things. And it, it's a very simple truth. It's something like just seeing things as they are. When the Buddha summed it up when he said, seeing should just be seeing, or what is seen should just be that which is seen. So when you say seeing, seeing, you're not trying to see something besides the seeing, you're trying to cultivate the perspective that seeing is just seeing, and you're trying to notice all the extraneous stuff as being extraneous all of the baggage, all of our interpretations, the meaning we put in things as being me or mine or good or bad. Seeing those as the extraneous things that they are. It's just going to show you how your mind reacts. I mean, th this thought that comes up that uh, about wanting to see things that are not there, the fact that you cannot see, there can be doubt, there can be worry, and, and that's what you should be focusing on. You should be learning about how your mind gives rise to this meaning-making, 
hey, there's something wrong. That's just an extraneous thought. That's not actual, actually true. It's not part of reality. There's nothing quote-unquote wrong. I've been meditating and being mindful more and more. I'm facing challenges with ADHD and not being able to take actions. I'd like to do this without meds. Can you comment or advise, please? I mean, I'm not, I'm not certified to... See, the thing about people's medication, taking prescribed medita medication, is that it is generally governed by legal systems. And so for me to give you any advice on taking medication or not taking medication, as far as I understand, is a dangerous thing to do. It's something that I'm not um, legally qualified to do. So my advice would be to talk to your doctor about finding a way to live without the medication. Um, I can make an observation that people who are on medication, uh, psychoactive medication, generally tend to uh, not attain results in Satipatthana Vipassana meditation, in my from what I've seen. So it's in your best interest to find a way to to to, to talk to your doctor about. Uh, working on using meditation as a tool to help them uh, reduce your medication. Because as you're more mindful, you, you should be better able to face things as opposed to needing to remove them or, or uh, dampen them in any way. Great that you're facing things. Facing is all is a big part of an intrinsic part of what mindfulness is. It's even in the Pali definition of mindfulness to face reality. I often struggle to keep my back straight during sitting meditation, so I lean against the wall with a pillow. Is this okay? Do you have recommendations for keeping the back straight? Yeah, keeping the back straight is not really an essential part of the practice. This isn't yoga or tranquility meditation. It's about being mindful of the way things are. Um, even struggling, you know, straightening your back, having it slouch again, straightening it again can be an active part of your meditation. That's not really an issue. Noting the pain, that sort of thing. I wouldn't let it um, discourage you or dissuade you from actually practicing. It's it's better if you don't lean against the wall. Uh, it's certainly possible to do, but it's much more helpful if you, much more um, beneficial for you to struggle with it. And note the mental struggle, the disliking of it, the frustration, anything like that.
Is it unwholesome to read and think about Nibbana, similarly to reading about the 16 stages of knowledge before starting to practice? Unwholesomeness as a state of mind, there are only three qualities of mind that make something un make a mind state unwholesome. That's greed, anger, and delusion. Now, yes, reading too much intellectual, in, uh, reading too much theory about practice can give can lead to the the rise of uh, unwholesome states of mind. It doesn't necessarily have to, but it can. We, this is why we recommend not reading about the path that you're about to walk on intellectually, because there's quite detailed, and that that's a bad thing because that's a lot of information for you to then carry around and cultivate expectations about. So better not to read about that sort of thing. And reading about Nibbana, I'm not sure that there is much to read about. Most of what the Buddha said about Nibbana is that it, it's not something you can really describe. I wouldn't, I wouldn't get distracted. I would recommend not letting yourself get distracted by study or thoughts about Nibbana. It's not something besides the the path. The path is the path to freedom from suffering. Nibbana is just a part of that. I mean, literally, it's the freedom from suffering. That's the best way to understand it. Is noting enough when dealing with more serious hindrances, or should they be actively removed? It ultimately is enough, um, but practically there is support in the meantime to remove them. See, it, it is enough if and when you can be mindful, but there are serious hindrances that get in the way of being mindful. And so there are helpful meditations that can support your practice of mindfulness. And I've talked about those before. There's mindfulness of the Buddha. There's metta. There's asubha, which is reflection on the loathsome nature of the body and there is marana death mindfulness of death those four are considered to be the protective meditations that support your practice they can they can be helpful for the more extreme hindrances that seem to be making it impossible to med to be mindful but ultimately they're going to pale in comparison to actual mindfulness. And once you get the hang of being mindful, you can, of course, apply it to everything. I tell you, monks, mindfulness is useful everywhere. How does one determine if friendships are worth cultivating? Since meditating regularly, I notice that my friends cause me to be tired and not be mindful. Should I let go of these friendships? 
Yeah, you kind of have to see the difference between being friendly and cultivating a friendship. The only friendship you should really cultivate is one that is supportive of your own peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. But practically, always remember that difference, the difference between being friendly and cultivating a friendship. And take the attitude of trying to be friendly to everyone, but not but only cultivating those friendships that are beneficial, mutually beneficial. And what that looks like, um, yeah, I, mean, I think it's pretty easy to uh, to understand. Being friendly means uh, courteous and polite and thoughtful and that sort of thing but cultivating a friendship means uh, contacting you know, making effort to contact and making effort to associate with to spend time with supporting each other you know, offering taking time listening to you know some people are more worth listening to others. And so for some, you can just note hearing, hearing. For others, you try to appreciate the meaning and gain benefit from the speech. I am taking a supplement that helps with schizophrenia. Like, I can work now and I'm more active but I have a problem seeing a rising and ceasing of experience. What can I do? I want to stay on it. Well, don't fixate on something like seeing a rising and ceasing of, of experience. Try and just note what it is that you experience. I mean, I don't know what the supplement you're taking is, but if it's a psychoactive drug, um, I don't know how it is with schizophrenia. Uh, I, I know there are two parts to it. There, generally, there's the hallucinations and the reactions to the hallucinations that are often hard to differentiate, but it's not so important that you differentiate it. It's just important that you uh, come to understand, uh, come to, to uh, face whatever experience does arise. So if it feels like you're, for example, paranoid, Afraid. Paranoid is probably not a good word to use, but afraid. You can note afraid or worried if you're worried or angry, frustrated, that sort of thing. Confused. Those are all just reactions. So when you feel them, you just note them. And for the hallucinations, you note them as well. Um, and of course, the best would be if you were able to face all those things without any kind of medication if that were possible. Now, I don't know if it's possible. I don't, I've never met a schizophrenic who was successfully able to deal with their, um, with their condition without medication. I did meet a monk once who was not on medication, and I did spend some time trying to explain to him the practice of mindfulness, and he did meditate with me for a while. It seemed actually to be helping. I can't say how far he got or how much it helped him, but it certainly was a challenge he was dealing with. 
Uh, but I you know, wouldn't again wouldn't fixate on seeing something in particular. It's like that last question. It's kind of we kind of miss the point when we read all these teachings about oh these special things that you should see. There's there's nothing really special. The Buddha went on and on about the six hin- the six senses, the five aggregates, and they're they're not things that are hard to see. They're right there. The problem is we add on to them. This is why we react. Uh, when you start to perceive things just as they are, then there's no reaction. You can't like or dislike or be afraid of or angry at or that sort of doubt about uh, something as simple as seeing. And we miss that. We, we say, okay, I noted seeing, seeing. Now what? What's next? What comes next? Where's the special stuff? Where's the religious truth? The truth that we're trying to find is that seeing is just seeing. And by saying seeing, seeing, or worrying, worrying, you're teaching your mind that. You're teaching your mind a new way that doesn't involve reacting, doesn't involve judgment, doesn't involve suffering. What is a skillful way to respond to suffering that doesn't end and prevents you from doing positive actions? Grief, loss of mother, having no one to talk to, bad actions in the past, etc. Well, everything ends, and it ends fairly quickly. So one of the things you start to notice as you pay attention is that everything is quite quick to end. So you probably already can acknowledge that, but that's not what you likely mean by doesn't end. What you mean is most likely that it keeps coming back. But it's important to make that distinction and to acknowledge to yourself that there is no one thing that stays, even though it seems like I've been grieving, perhaps, for example, for years um, about this person who has died, etc. But that's not actually anything real. That's just a narrative. And it, it this reality of grieving that arises and ceases is perpetuated in to some respect by that narrative oh, i'm grieving i'm still grieving even the wish not not to grieve anymore or the clinging to the grief and not knowing any better way but the reality the realities are arising and ceasing and so there's nothing really mysterious about it um the experiences themselves arise and cease, and you should note them. As you start to note them, you, your your mind starts to get tired of it. There's this word nibida, atanibinda duke. You get tired of suffering. You get disenchanted. I mean, it's not exactly tired, but it, it's how we say it in English. You get tired of something. Oh, I'm just so tired of it. Your mind becomes loses the excitement, loses the interest in it. So it's not about disliking it so much that it goes away. The disliking doesn't actually make something go away. Wanting something to go away doesn't make it go away. It's when you get bored of it, basically. When you see it so clearly and you just get sick of it, you start to see, oh, this is just completely useless. And when your mind, not intellectually, but when you, your mind really gets that sense that this is useless, then it disappears. it never comes back. That's nibida. Nibida is the state where the mind turns away from suffering. So um, I don't know if you've read our booklet, but like loss of a mother isn't a reality. 
the grief is a reality, but sadness or grief, but it arises and ceases. Loss of a mother is just a concept. It's a narrative. I've lost my mother is something you can tell yourself. The reality is there arises a memory of a person who you identify with as your mother as a result. Well, and then there's the recognition that that person is no longer here. And then there's disliking of that thought, that memory. I mean, that's the what's really happening moment to moment. And those are things you can come to terms with. Those are things you can come to appreciate and see for yourself what is useful, what is useless, what is beneficial, what is harmful. You can teach yourself how useless it is to be sad, for example. Um, and having no one to talk to is also not a reality. Loneliness can be a reality. Wanting someone to talk to, the wanting can be a reality. The thought... The narrative that you tell yourself, I have no one to talk to, that thought is a reality. But those things all arise and cease. They come and go. and You sort of demystify all of these things. There's nothing, there's no narrative. The narratives are not real. You just start to see what you're experiencing here and now. It's like popping the top off a car and instead of saying my car broke down, actually looking inside and saying, oh wait, the carburetor is whatever happens to carburetors or the this this thing that's connected to that thing is no longer connected or something like that actually seeing what what the issue is oh yes sadness is actually just useless harmful it's not helping me in any way it's not a good response it's not skillful so rather than tell you what is a skillful way to respond you have to learn for yourself what is actually beneficial wholesome good for you you'll see it for yourself but you have to be make that switch from narratives and concepts like people and situations to just the actual momentary experiences also bad actions in the past are not real there's no such thing i mean there is technically such a thing but what i mean is they don't exist all that exists is the memory of a bad deed in the past guilt about it that arises all these things the real things arise and cease the real things do end very quickly and paying attention to those helps you appreciate and understand reality and see what you are doing to yourself in real time and when you see what you're doing to yourself in real time you you change you become you get bored of it and you no longer do it Sometimes when I meditate, I get a sudden jolt, an energy shock, the feeling I've been driving and waking up to a car crash. I continue to meditate. It's something like a big release. I'm not sleepy. It doesn't happen every time, but over two years of meditation, it still comes up. Why is this? Is it just the energy system? Should I be mindful when it happens and ends and go deeper? Yeah, there's no there's no point to the why why something happens there's nothing there's nothing meaningful in the why of things there's only what's meaningful in the nature of things is this well what is this you don't even have to ask ever is this x or is this y is this good is it this bad you just have to ask yourself what it is and recognize it for what it is 
and be objective about what it is. That's really all you need. There's also no going deeper, as though there were some deeper meaning. It really is this fairly superficial, fairly um, general, because the Buddha said to, to ignore the details of things. So it's a very general sort of awareness, and that is all you need. It keeps you objective, it keeps you from making more of things than they actually are. So you might want to note the wondering, the doubt, any liking or disliking of it, any thinking that arises about it. But other than that, it's it's impermanent suffering and non-self. That's all you can say about it. And note it, and then until it goes away, or if it's momentary, it's just going to note it after it's already gone, perhaps, and then move on. There is actually no meaning behind things. Are there any practical tips through meditation to let go of people who still live? For example, people who let go of us or hurt us? Um, I won't really look at it that way. So change in perspective is important here. Instead of fixating on letting go, right? It's actually this is relates to any question. This is this same as any question that asks about letting go of anything. How do I let go of X, Y, or Z? It's there's no nothing special about a people, a person, whether they live or don't live. We don't try to let go of things. Um, be, because you have to understand that letting go means letting come. Letting go means no longer attaching. How do you not attach to something? So a person isn't a real thing. You cannot actually attach to a person. What you attach to is the experiences, which can be memories, uh, thoughts, can be sounds, sights, whenever you see them, whenever you hear their voice whenever you think about them, whenever you imagine them in your mind, those are experiences, and those are the things that we attach to. We associate them with something in the past. We identify with this as my friend or my person or the person I'm in love with or that sort of thing. This is the person I heard you with. That's just the narrative that arises in the mind. You can know this was thinking. But we attach to those experiences. So we try to focus on the experiences and the attachments. If you like something or you dislike something, any memory you have, try and focus on the memory. If you hear someone's voice hearing, as you get more skilled at it, you're able to cultivate the perspective of hearing just being hearing. So when you hear their voice, you're no longer attached to it because you've seen there's no reason to attach it. You start to see how the attachment is causing you suffering. The attachment is... Uh, harmful to you. Maybe read our booklet. Um, you can do, don't forget about the at-home course if you haven't done it. It's a great way to get into mindfulness practice. We have a few new people this week. It's great to see always new people signing up. A sign that there's still interest in cultivating mindfulness.
My last meditation session ended in an extreme experience. I've seen a lot and felt a lot, but it was scary. I haven't meditated since. It's been two years. How do I get back to myself? Yeah, there's uh, with this sort of question. There's often a narrative of getting back to something, some state that I was. You identify, you conceive of a, a you that existed in the past that was generally better than the you that you conceive of now, and you cultivate yearning for that. Uh, maybe anguish, sadness, anger, frustration, depression about the loss of that self. The thing is, neither that past self nor the present self actually exists or ever did exist. So this is just a narrative. This is not a narrative you should hold on to. Not meditating for two years is a bad thing. We can say that. And so what should you do? Not how should you get back to yourself. What should you do? You should cultivate mindfulness. When you're afraid, you should not afraid, afraid. There is no such thing as something that is scary. A thing cannot be scary. You can react with fear to something. But ultimately, you will, you will see if you're mindful that that fear is irrational, unwarranted, unhelpful, harmful to you. And through seeing that, you'll give up your fear. It's simple. I mean, I make this all sound quite easy, and it's not easy. It's simple but it's a real challenge to change that perspective. But that's where the challenge lies, not in attaining something that you've lost, becoming something that you aren't, anything like that. It's about seeing things as they are, giving up your perception, your invalid perceptions of things, like the, 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 our perceptions that cause us stress and suffering. How can the practice help alleviate symptoms of depersonalization or derealization? Those are just words, and I've heard these words before, and I think they're invalid. I think I would throw out those two. Well, depersonalization, I haven't really heard much about derealization, but it sounds like what my reaction to this is, oh no, it's growing. <laughs> it used to be just one word, now it's two words. These are just words. So you come back with a question about actual experiences that you're having, having and use better words to describe them. And then, well, I mean, I, I, I suppose I already know what the, the states are. This is um, some kind of feeling you get. It can be associated with fear. It can be associated with uh, worry, that sort of thing. Uh, it can be associated with confusion. But um, some kind of altered state of perception, where you, um, well, in many in many ways, have just lost the sense of self, which is not a problem, because self is not a thing that you can ever find anyway. So, I mean, these words just create some narrative. I practice meditation and then I 
experience depersonalization or I experienced it even without meditation or, or whatever. But this is just um, you know, kind of reifying something. If there's a state of awareness, if it's some altered state of awareness, you just note it. You can say aware, aware, or knowing, knowing. If it's a feeling, you can note feeling, feeling. You feel depersonalization, you just note feeling, feeling. It's not, I mean, depersonalization is just an a, a, a interpretation of it. And like everything else, it comes and goes. It's impermanent suffering and non-self. There's nothing else you can really say about it. Not stable, not satisfying, not controllable. So don't cling to it. Don't try to fix it. Don't try to control it. Try and see it clearly and let it go. What is a good metric to tell whether the meditation was productive after meditation? Well, I would focus more on appreciating how the meditation is productive right now, in this moment. And so after the meditation, if you had those moments where you felt like you were mindful, seeing things as they are, that would be a good sort of metric. Over the long term, you of course get lots of feedback from other people, from your own experiences, you notice how you're less reactionary. But um, I would kind of shy away from taking the meditation as a whole as being productive or not productive. It's, it's moments. So you should be focused on, were there moments where I was mindful? Was I getting better at seeing things just as they are? Was I actually present in some moments? And don't fixate so much on results. Try and cultivate the skill, the ability to be present. There's no doubt, and there should be no doubt that that's a good thing. You just have, maybe have to learn that in the beginning, what a good thing that is. And then just focus on that. Don't don't step out of the meditation and say, is this, is this working? Is this working? There's no benefit to that. Don't, don't fall into that trap. Ignore that part of your mind when you worry about it or doubt about it, that sort of thing. It's just Mara. Focus on the good things, the, the mind, the presence, the clarity of mind. Just stick to that whenever you can. How can I tame my mind? Through the practice of mindfulness. I don't know if you've read our booklet on how to meditate. That would be a would would recommend a place to start. If you've done that, then you could do the at-home course. You could come and do an intensive course at our center. It's all free. So feel free to look up the resources that we have for taming the mind. How can an advanced meditator be indifferent and still make choices? Doesn't choosing one option over another imply or require partiality? No. No, there's many other reasons why we choose something. You can choose something as the path of least resistance. You can choose something. I mean, an advanced meditator chooses things out of wisdom and clarity. So, so you might argue that there really isn't a choice. 
rather than making a choice, the person sees what is the right choice and just makes that. Uh, I mean, there's lots of there's lots of choices that they won't make. They just won't care one way or the other. So they'll say something like, "Oh, I don't mind either way." Or they might just make a choice based on something very functional like proximity. Okay, I'll take the one that's next to me. Like, for example, when eating food, when you have many dishes to choose from, I'll just choose the ones closest to you. That's the easiest. But there's there's other reasons. Wisdom. Um, what is reasonable? I think Buddhism is very much focused on what is reasonable to do. And don't worry too much about making the right choice because choices aren't actually important the quality of mind when we do something so we just look at things and if it's reasonable to do we just well do it any advice on dealing with the staggering and sometimes insurmountable student loan debts being collected these days Yeah, well, uh, I think the answer is an improvement in society. Society has to improve to the point where we care about each other. So there is some uh, movement in America now to forgive some student loans. And that's simply a change of government does that. So government is not meaningless government is supposed to and the buddha said this this is a buddhist teaching government is supposed to protect people um, it's not just supposed to protect people from enemies it's supposed to protect people from poverty it's supposed to take care of its people that's what government is supposed to do it's, i think it's i can't think of anything more fundamental to government than to cultivate the well-being of its people. I mean, it's supposed to be for the people, right? It's not supposed to be controlling, uh, dominating, subjugating the people. That should never be the point of government. There's no wholesomeness or goodness in that. There's no benefit to anyone in that. So... It's an argument for people living in the world to have a awareness of politics and an engagement in politics. I mean, boy, we could sure use some more Buddhist politicians. I don't know that any Buddhist would dare to get involved with much politics, but anyone who were that noble, anyone looking to become a Buddha, you know, the Buddha was king in so many lifetimes. So let that be a lesson for you. If you're not intent on becoming a monk and leaving leaving samsara in this life, there's so much you can do if you want to follow even somewhat in the Buddha's footsteps and help people. If you look at uh, Saka, the king of the gods of the 33, he and his fellows changed the government, their local government. They took it over. 
They didn't take it over by force, they took it over by goodness. They were just so good to everyone that people kicked out the old mayor and uh, these guys sort of ran the show because they were actually caring for people. I don't, I mean, the world is constantly evolving and it's not sure that there is any solution that is ever going to present itself, but that being a worldly issue, I mean, of course, the, 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 the advice I should be giving you, of course, is to be mindful and, and deal with the stress and the depression and that sort of thing with mindfulness. And of course, that's important, but there is something to be said for working to help uh, make society a better place. And if we talk about these things as Buddhists, then to some extent we can change people's opinions about what constitutes good government, governance and that sort of thing. You know, but even people running for municipal government can have a great impact on society and can be quite rewarding because it's nonpartisan and all that. So I think there's room for that. Buddhism sometimes presents itself as being apolitical and that sort of thing. And certainly monks have to be apolitical, but there's nothing really political about welfare, the welfare of, of people. That's just, uh, well, that's about as religious as it gets, right? freedom from suffering. So, I mean, seeing this in, in, I mean, in Canada, we have fairly good loan forgiveness, I think. So getting a student loan isn't such a horrible, horrible thing here in Canada. But in America, it's always been a, a devastating, it, it's in many cases been just devastating. And the inability to, to declare bankruptcy and that sort of thing. But um, but why why I indulge this this conversation is because it speak it spoke to a lack of compassion, a lack of kindness, a lack of consideration, a lack of care by the government, and now you hear about now there is loan forgiveness in America, and that's a sign of of governance that is working, and it's it's the solution to those things. I suppose that's not exactly what your question was, and it's not really appropriate. And the idea was here to focus on meditation. So absolutely, you, you, you should, um, what you can, what you can do as an individual for your situation, first and foremost, is dealing with your own condition, but bringing up these topics, talking about them and talking about what is really important and that's caring for each other and, and being considerate and thoughtful and doing your job, you know, as a politician, that sort of thing. Talking about these things, I think is a part of the conversation i have to go it's we're over time now and there's meditators waiting so i guess we'll end there thank you Bhante. thank you for all your questions thank you chris and edit for your help everyone have a good week and find may you all find peace happiness and freedom from suffering sadhu sadhu <laughs>